Well, good morning, church. Can you turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 12? We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 12, the first 24 verses. And I'm going to read it for us together. Acts chapter 12, and from verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. The chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people we're expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice. In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that this was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. I've read with great interest over the last year or so of the Australian government's and indeed other policing units around the different states and the battles that they've had to control the rise of certain bikey gangs in the criminal underworld. 
And together these uh, policing units have come to the conclusion that one of the most effective ways to break their control is to go after their leadership. One of the key means that they use to do this is to revoke the visa of those members of bikey groups that are not Australian citizens. Surprisingly enough, a number of the leadership are not Australian citizens. They may have been here for a long time, but they're not Australian citizens. So it is a little while ago that the head of the largest uh, outlaw bikey gang in Australia goes to Malta to visit family. While he's there, his visa is revoked. He's not able to re-enter Australia. And despite a number of legal challenges, he's still left overseas. That's created in a vacuum in his particular gang and it has really affected their ability to function as the criminal organisation that they are. Indeed, 93 bikey leaders have been deported or had their visas revoked in the last two years. And there are another 400 or so on a watch list being closely scrutinised. And when you think about it, it's kind of obvious. If you wanted to bring down an organisation, where's the most effective place to start? It's got to be with its leadership, surely. The Australian cricket team is a master at doing it. They, they specifically pick on the opposition captain that they are beginning to play a series against. They work on this theory that if they get under his skin, if he loses focus, then it will affect the entire team that they're playing against. The, any armed force knows that the opposition leadership is a key target. Our, our political, certainly in the Western world, the political um, elections seem to focus much more on personalities, on, on, on trying to criticise the opposition leader than on good policy. And you could think of any number of groups where, when you think about it, where their leadership is undermined, is attacked, then it's going to affect the rest of that group. Well, as we've noticed in previous weeks, as we've looked in Acts, the, the church's popular run in Jerusalem is coming to a close, at least in the eyes of the Jewish leadership. Just imagine for a moment how the face of that city has changed. People are being converted in their tens of thousands. Now, we understand not all those people lived in Jerusalem, but a good portion of them did. What did those people do? They went back with the message to the synagogues. They started to, to open house churches. They boldly proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus Christ and new life through faith in him. Now, because Herod Agrippa's reign is well document, documented, we know that the church is somewhere around 8 to 12 years of age by the time we get to Acts chapter 12. It's well established by now continuing to make inroads in the city. And at some point, the enemy decides enough is enough. Something's got to be done. Well, how would you attack or undermine or compromise a church? Taking out its leadership is a good place to start. Just quickly, the background. We hear of Herod here. Um, Herod was part of the Herodian dynasty. Uh, this is actually Herod Agrippa I that we're looking at here. He's not the Herod who um, sought to kill all male children at Jesus' birth. He's not the Herod that uh, questioned Jesus. 
uh, during his trials. He's not the Agrippa we're going to read later on about in Acts, who Paul stood before. Herod Agrippa's grandmother was, in fact, a Jewess. And as a small, a small child, his father dies. So he's sent to Rome to continue his education. And while he's in Rome, he, he meets many members of the imperial family there. He grew up with the future emperor, emperor Gaius, who we know as, as Caligula, and his successor Tiberius. And through these contacts in Rome and his own political nous, he has, by the time we get to Acts chapter 12, chapter 12, the title of king bestowed on him. And he has control over Judea and Samaria and Galilee and other areas to the east. So it is through his grandmother's background and his own understanding of the political landscape in Jerusalem at this time that he's able to ingratiate himself with the Jewish leaders. They regarded him at least in part as one of them. He had Jewish heritage. He was even known to feature in the Jewish feasts from time to time as a means to grow his power base. Even on occasion, he was allowed to read the scriptures publicly. And it's in this setting that Herod Agrippa decides it's time to act. The time is right. And so we read in the first five verses of Acts chapter 12, that both James and subsequently Peter are arrested. But unlike previous occurrences in Acts where the apostles are miraculously rescued or they're told to behave themselves, maybe they cop a bit of a beating and they're sent on their way, unlike those times, James is killed by the sword. One of the twelve is put to death. Now this was a significant means to put someone to death in Jewish minds. And Agrippa well knew the background from Deuteronomy chapter 13. There was a significance that James was killed by the sword. Deuteronomy chapter 13 says that if someone entices a Jew to serve another god, he's to be taken outside and stoned. But where a whole city is led astray the sword would be the manner of God's justice. So it's now clear what the church in Jerusalem is accused of. Leading the entire city astray en masse. Peter too is arrested, we know. And we assume there is similar intent on the part of Agrippa that he faced the same fate further gaining favour with the Jewish leadership. And all this was to take place after the week of celebration that combined the Feast of Unleavened Bread with the Passover. But during this time, we're told, there is earnest prayer being made. Literally, there is continued prayer being made by the church. They gather together in their homes and offer up prayers on Paul's behalf. Now, we're not actually told what they were praying for, though their surprise at Peter's appearance would suggest to me that perhaps they were thinking of something other than direct divine intervention. Remember, unlike their arrest and escape previously, a key member of the Twelve is now dead. Another is in maximum security. 
Just come with me in your mind's eye for a moment. What if? What if persecution were to break out in Melbourne? What if, for instance, John and Nathan get arrested? They come to the church, John and Nathan are arrested. I'm not sure where Shubbs is. Maybe he's at a coffee shop or he might be down at state youth games. I'm not exactly sure where he is. But Nathan and John are arrested. John is martyred. I'm sorry, John, I've just picked your name out of it. John is martyred. (laughs) Nathan, on the other hand, is thrown into one of our supermax prisons. I mean, you don't get out of a supermax prison unless they let you out. It's got all the bells and whistles. How would you pray? What prayers would you offer up to God? Now, I understand that perhaps Julie might be praying for Nathan's miraculous release. But probably if it was me, I'd be asking God to look after Nathan's health. That God would strengthen his faith in the midst of this trial. That the Spirit would offer great comfort to Nathan in prison. That he would have great boldness and strength to proclaim the truth of God's word to his captors. Perhaps that the authorities would soften their approach and that even some of them would come to know Jesus as a result. And yet as we read on in, uh, from verse 16 down to 19, we read of a direct intervention where God sends an angel to miraculously rescue Peter. Despite being heavily guarded, he is freed and goes to the house of Mary, John Mark's mother. And after a somewhat amusing interlude where the disciples praying would not believe the servant girl Rhoda's insistence that he was knocking on the door, Peter is eventually allowed access and relays his story. He leaves to go elsewhere and the rest were told to tell James. Obviously not the James that had just been killed, it's James the Lord's brother. James, Jesus' half-brother, became a key member of the church in Jerusalem. The guards are judged by Herod to have failed in their duties and they're sent to their deaths. Now we understand this and this is quite a, a familiar passage. It's a, it's a fascinating, engaging narrative. But there is a key overriding principle here. And indeed it's a theme that's running throughout the book of Acts but is particularly relevant here in this chapter. And that theme is the sovereignty of God. Why is James killed, but Peter is miraculously rescued? Was it that the church did not have the opportunity to pray for James that it has for Peter? Perhaps that was so. Yet were they not both one of the inner circle of of apostles, Peter, James and John? I don't know where John was at this time either. Maybe he was at a coffee shop too. I'm not exactly sure where uh, John was. But they were one of the inner circle of disciples. They were present at the transfiguration of the Lord. And there are numerous occurrences in the gospel where we read that Jesus takes time to teach them, to build them in their leadership role. Do we say that Peter was just one of the favoured apostles? He was just dear to the Lord's heart. Yet, 
Jesus corrected him probably more than he did any of the other disciples, any of the other apostles. So we return again to the issue of the sovereignty of God. What do we mean when we say God is sovereign? You've all heard it before. You've heard it from up the front. You've read it in books. You've even said it yourself in your own thoughts as you've talked to other people. What do we mean when we say, when we talk about the sovereignty of God? I like what A.W. Pink in his book, funnily enough, called The Sovereignty of God says. He says this, To say that God is sovereign is declare that he is the almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat his counsel, thwart his purposes, or resist his will. To say that God is sovereign is declare that he is the governor among the nations, setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires, and determining the course of dynasties as pleases him best. To say God is sovereign is to declare that he is the only potentate, the king of kings and lord of lords. Such is the God of the Bible. Well, what about us? What about you and I? How do we understand the sovereignty of God at play in our own lives? There's a marriage that's not quite what we expected it to be. Parenthood is not as easy as others appear to make it out to be. There's illness. There's discouragement. We're trapped in a job we can't stand. Burdened with a study load that becomes all-encompassing. We ask for God's help. Oh Lord, change my spouse's heart. Help my kids to be more receptive. Heal me. Give me a better job. God, help my parents to understand me. Why is it that serving him seems to be such a grind instead of a joy? What about when things are going smoothly for us? When we're receiving blessing upon blessing... Where is God's sovereignty at work there? How does it fit in? God's sovereignty, his way, timing, purposes and plans aren't always in line with our own. It's a doctrine that few of us completely embrace because unlike God, we do not see everything as he does. We do not know everything as he does. We are not all powerful as he is. And sometimes we must by faith acknowledge while we don't know or understand our Heavenly Father cares for us and he will sustain us perfecting us until we meet him face to face. Hey church, do you want to know something that I think is really awesome? Something that is amazing. Look at everyone around you. Look at those people around you. People that you may know well or maybe not at all. Those sitting beside you, they may be family, loved ones, good friends. You look out and you see other people that you're going to catch up with after church, have a good, good chin wag with. There might be people that you've never met before or people that all you do is say hello and goodbye and, and that's about it. God knows all of them, every part of them. His plan for their lives will be accomplished. And many of these people's lives will actually affect your own. 
yet his plans for your life will not be frustrated as a result of his work in, in their lives, in other people's lives. Now we add to that the mix of the free will that each of us has to, to make decisions for ourselves. Sometimes they're good decisions, sometimes they're not so good. Decisions that in fact affect those around us. Yet still he works his perfect sovereign will out in your life. He is able to accomplish work in other people's lives at the same time working in your lives and it all fits together. I mean, who does that? Who can take stock of everyone's lives, their decisions, their health or lack thereof, their wealth, their intellect, intellect, passions and dreams and use them to affect others in the grand scheme of life? It's the King of King and Lord of Lords. That's the mighty, awesome, sovereign God we know at work. James is martyred. And Peter is rescued. The apostles were used by God to raise the dead. Yet they themselves were killed for their faith. They healed the sick. Even we're told in Acts, a shadow passing by was enough on occasion to heal. Yet someone as powerfully gifted as the Apostle Paul could not remove the thorn in his own flesh. Even though begging the Lord to do so, he was told, my grace will be sufficient for you. It's God's sovereignty at work. It doesn't necessarily make it easy for us. But it does give us a starting point, a reference where we can know that there is a God that is bigger than us. There is a God that knows more than we do. There is a God that has our best interests at heart and he will use us to impact those around us. In all our thoughts, study and beliefs on this topic, the Bible reveals from start to finish an almighty God that he's able to do abundantly more than we ask or expect. He's able to save, to help us in times of temptation. We're told that nothing can separate us from his love. He comforts us in our afflictions. He makes all grace abound. He enables us to stand against the schemes of the devil. And the greatest expression of God's sovereign love towards us is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is mighty to save for all time. He will never leave or forsake us. He prepares a better place for us. He makes intercession on our behalf, sends the Spirit to dwell with us. He longs for reconciliation with you and I. And even more than that, it is he who provides the means to that reconciliation. Let me ask you, do you think that the impact of Peter's rescue was any less impactful on the early church than James's death? Oh, I doubt it. Getting back to our earlier musings over John and Nathan. Nathan miraculously escapes 
from Supermax Prison and he comes and he returns to us. Tell me, would John's death or Nathan's miraculous escape have a greater impact on us? I suspect it would depend a little bit on the individual, a little bit about where we're at. But the answer is that in both instances, they would have left a permanent impression upon us all. The lives of both Peter and James left that indelible mark on the early church. Indeed, it left a legacy that we today enjoy. Well, as we continue to read through Acts chapter 12, we see the antithesis of what it looks like to acknowledge the work of an all-powerful, sovereign God. The opposite of recognising God's work, the opposite of realising that our gifting or practical abilities, our material possessions or wealth, The opposite of acknowledging that our status or position that we've attained in life, our intelligence or the success of our business and sporting endeavours are from him. The opposite view is to take what belongs to him and to parade it around as our very own. That is what we find Herod judged for from verses 20 to 23. For reasons we're not told... Herod is upset with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon, uh, port cities to the north of of Jerusalem in what we now know as modern Lebanon. And the response of the leaders of these towns was to seek to make peace with a man who had the power and resources to economically cripple them, to actually starve them if he so wished. The Jewish historian Josephus also describes the death of Herod Agrippa after only a few years into his reign. Josephus says that there was a festival in Caesarea in honour of Caesar where Herod Agrippa is dressed in all his fine robes and the people of Tyre and Sidon come along and they offer up praises to him as being like a god after he has spoken to them. And as we read here He is struck down by an angel of the Lord. Judgment came to the man who would seek to destroy the church of Jesus Christ and take what belongs to God and claim it for himself. Not only did Herod seek to dismantle the church of Jesus Christ through destroying its leadership, he accepted the glory that was only due to God for himself. See, when God says, I'm a jealous God, he means what he says. There are no idle words. Aaron's two sons ignored God's instructions regarding their priestly duties and were put to death. King Uzziah, with pride, sought to do what only the priests were allowed to do, and he was struck down with leprosy and subsequently died. And here Herod takes the glory that was due God alone. Well, knowing the scriptures as he did, Herod Agrippa, acting like a god, takes the life of the Lord's servant, James. He takes it upon himself to judge the guards and have those put to death. He's basking in his own glory, refusing to acknowledge his own limitations 
and believing the lie that man is his own master. Friends, that is the mantra of our society. That's the culture we live in. Whatever success, gifts, talents, whatever status or material worth we obtain, we should glory in it for ourselves. Look at what I can do. Look at what I've accomplished. Be impressed with what I've accumulated for myself. You too can be like me. Just buy my book or whatever. As I've said before, no matter that but for God's mercy, we could all be born to a beggar's life on the streets of India. Or some place where there is little chance of ever hearing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But for the grace of God go I. Yet for all we achieve and stockpile here and now, what is the true legacy we leave behind? Where a sovereign, almighty God is acknowledged as our king, where our lives are lived recognising that though we cannot know all of his intricate plans for our lives, yet still we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. We can know his peace, comfort and strength in all of life's challenges. Where we would be willing to use the blessings, the gifts, the talents and material things we have for his service, confessing them to be his anyway, we will find ourselves in the midst of his transforming grace, not only at work in ourselves, but used as instruments in his hands to bless those around us, to impact those around us, to challenge and uh, convict those around us. One of the things that, that I've really um, noticed as we've continued to go through the book of Acts are those helpful little notices spotted throughout. Verses that describe the end result of what Luke is describing to Theophilus. And so we're told that uh, after preaching, 3,000 people come to the Lord in one sitting. A little later, 5,000 men become disciples. We're told on another occasion that there are those added daily to the church. We're told elsewhere of those filled with wonder at what is transpiring in Jerusalem. That through opposition, believers spoke the word of God with even more boldness. Far from running away to hide, they would receive boldness from the Lord. We're told elsewhere that they did not cease preaching that Jesus is the Christ. And last week we saw that significant moment when the Gentiles received the gospel message. And Peter comes back and the church has this inquiry and they ask what's going on. And we saw last week that Peter said, this is what God has revealed to me. And then what happens? They glorify God that he had revealed himself to the Gentiles. Here again in verse 24. Let's read it together. But the word of God increased and multiplied. God continues to grow his church. His way. All the schemes of men, the attacks of the enemy, the rebellious man will not frustrate the plans of a sovereign God. Despite all the attempts, 
the adversary's plans for destruction are used by a sovereign God to continue to bless, to grow his church. He takes what appears lost and turns it into something that is wondrous. That's what he's done with my life. That's what he's done with every one of us who would claim Jesus as their saviour. He takes what appears hopeless and he turns it into something that is unique, something that is special, something that will glorify him and something that will be used by him to bear witness to him in this world. As a leadership team, we, we really grieve over the numbing blindness of the society that we live in. And we just want to say, if you're one today who needs to concede that their lives are committed to those things that cannot truly satisfy, that you talk with someone this morning. How long must you hunger and thirst for something, only to find when you receive it, before long you need to search for something else, to hunger and thirst for something else? Because there is nothing that satisfies. There is nothing that meets the need that Jesus Christ has the answer for in our hearts. Church, could I encourage you to pray for our leaders? There's an election in the, in the pipeline. I trust that you are praying for our political leaders. They have such an opportunity to do right and to do wrong by this country. Do continue to pray for them faithfully. I would encourage you to pray for the pastors and elders here at Canterbury Gardens. We recognise and, and the members of the COM too. We recognise that this is a spiritual battle we are in. We want to be in tune with God's spirit. We want to be where God wants us to be. Because we know when that happens, then we will see him continue to grow, to bless and to build his church. Friends, we cannot control everything. We cannot know everything. We cannot do everything no matter how highly we think of ourselves. Yet I know one who can do all things. My prayer is that you will know him and that you will embrace him as you leave here today. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we want to thank you for your all-encompassing care for us. Thank you that you're a God who knows every one of us intimately. You have such a special plan for our lives as you do for all of those around us. And yet by your unique power and authority, you're able to govern everyone's life according to your will that they would give you glory. Lord God, would you help us as a church to be faithful in presenting the power of your gospel to those around us. May you cause Jesus Christ to become real to us in such a way that we cannot help but share his good news with those around us. As we go out into this world this week, as we commune with our work colleagues, with our school friends, at uni, in our own homes, before our friends and neighbours, may we be salt and light in this world. May you use us here at Canterbury Gardens to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. May you grow us by your grace and cause us to know what it is to be able to turn to you and say, such is a mighty, awesome God that we serve. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.